Amen. Thank you, Jared. You all heard Jared introduce himself. He is our uh, um, student minister here at Freshwater. So if you have a teenager or, um, you know, even a, yeah, if you have a teenager, make sure that you talk to Jared. And uh, he's the guy that uh, leads the great group of volunteers that ministers and and makes disciples of the teenagers that God has brought here to Freshwater. So um, I'm going to ask that you take your copy of God's Word and turn it to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as we talk today about the story of an old, old promise. An old, old promise. That's going to be page 3 if you've got a pew Bible close to you. So you can uh, pick up that pew Bible and um, uh, anywhere uh, you got one close to you and make sure that um, uh, if you just barely open it, one of the first pages you'll find the book of Genesis. We're going to be big number 3, so if you can find big number 3, and then little number 15. So that'll be verse number 15 is where we'll read in just a second. By the way, I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. So um, if you're guests with us, welcome. We're ecstatic that you're here hanging out with us. I'd love to meet you before you leave for the day. Our mission as a church is to help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. Has anybody ever heard of a man named Vermin Supreme? Vermin, you know who Vermin Supreme is. Good. Were you in the first service? No, you, I bet you were. Um, good. So Brian's a, you know, Brian, Brian loves worthless information, stuff that there's no reason you really need to know that, the same way that I do. I love that kind of information as well. What? That's right, free ponies for all, absolutely. So I'd be pretty impressed with you if, uh, if, if you had known who he was, or at least if a, a big group of you had. I had just happened to run across him, but Vermin Supreme is a rather eccentric man. He lives in New Hampshire, I think, and he's ran for public office for president several times. He's known for wearing a boot for a hat. He carries a large toothbrush with him everywhere that he goes, um, like a large, like clown-sized toothbrush, and um, pretty interesting guy. So he ran in 2004, 2008, ran in 2012, and actually ran again uh, this year in 2016, and actually garnered some votes. But what got my attention about this man were the campaign promises that he's made. So he has ran on a platform of zombie apocalypse preparation. That was one of his platforms. Uh, He also ran on a platform of ensuring funding for time travel research. He promised to make it a law that you have to brush your teeth. He was really going after the dentist vote with that one. And then my personal promise is the same one that Brian got after, where he promised every single American a pony. Pony. Ponies for everybody. No joke. Now, we hear that kind of stuff, and it's kind of comical to us, and we kind of write it off, and we think, yeah, you know, big deal. He made those promises, whatever, and that's kind of interesting. But a lot of people have said that he has made those promises really tongue-in-cheek simply to draw attention to how often it is that we, the American people, get lied to. Not only by politicians, but kind of by everybody. It's kind of almost a part of our society. And unfortunately, it seems like it doesn't even bother us anymore when someone says something and makes us a promise that we know they're not going to keep, like we know it. It's not even up for debate. We've become almost numb as a society to the reality that promises are consistently broken, aren't they? Actually, even if we think outside of the political sphere, I was reading a blog this week. This was a secular blog, so it didn't really have anything to do with the Bible or Jesus or anything like that or Christianity. But the author was just commenting on how one of their best friends would consistently make these boisterous promises to them, yet they'd never keep them. 
and how this author had really come to a conclusion that they just kind of accepted that, that life today was a life that included getting lied to on a regular basis. So what has happened is that so many of us have been raised in a culture, or we were raised in a family, or maybe we've been in a, in a work environment where a promise doesn't really mean anything. Well, what we're going to see today is that God makes promises in the Bible, and actually he makes a lot of promises in the Bible, but the difference between God's promises and the world's promises is that God has never once failed to do exactly what he told us he was going to do. And actually, maybe you've never realized this, but the celebration of Christmas is the celebration of a promise that God made in the first book of the Bible. And it's actually that promise that God made thousands of years ago that demands our attention this morning. Now, before I read for us from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, let me kind of bring us up to, to speed on what has happened up until that point in God's Word. If you've never read the first three chapters of the Bible, the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, I really encourage you to put that on your short list. I mean, it'll really revolutionize the way you see the world and sin and people and everything else. But the Bible opens with creation. God creates everything that exists in six days. On that sixth day is when he creates mankind, which is kind of the pinnacle of God's creation because mankind is the only thing that God creates that is said to bear the image of God. So by the way, that's why every single person that you know or that you will ever meet, no matter their skin color, no matter their nationality, no matter their gender, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter their past sinful addictions, whatever, that's why everyone is due respect. Everyone. Because every person you will ever meet bears the image of our Creator. That's the first chapter of the Bible. The second chapter of the Bible kind of zooms in on that day when God created mankind and how God created Eve from the rib of Adam and how they came together and God officiated the first marriage, marrying that young couple. But the third chapter is the chapter where it all just kind of falls apart. Because chapter 3 is the chapter that we often refer to as the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve decide to do the one thing that God had told them not to do, namely to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're tempted by the snake that we know is in some way the embodiment of Satan the devil. They follow the temptation. They obey him rather than God. And as a result, their relationship with God is broken and they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But not before God first curses the woman Eve and the man Adam, but also the snake who, remember, represents Satan, the devil. And this morning, we're not going to give close attention to the curse on Eve or the curse on Adam, but the curse on Satan is incredibly important for us this morning because in that curse, God places on him, we see a promise that God made that directly brings about the celebration of Christmas. Essentially, God's promise in the third chapter of the Bible is why we have Christmas. It's why we celebrate the birth of Christ. It's why you might have a nativity scene in your home. And it's why Jesus would head ultimately to the cross to pay for our sins. Now, what is this promise that God makes? Why is it so important? Why does what God says in verse 15 of the third chapter of the Bible, why does that really pave the road for everything else that we see through the Old Testament, taking us all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, it's actually a promise that, remember, God makes to Satan. It's got two tiers to it. That's the way we're going to think about it this morning. We're going to see both of those tiers represented in verse 15. I'll tell you the first tier now, and then we'll look at the first part of verse 15. If you're doing the fill-in thing, here's going to be your first blank. Here's the first tier of this promise that God makes to you. God has promised that life for us is going to involve struggle. 
That's what God has promised you. Life for us is going to involve struggle. Because look at the first half of verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, what does it say? God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now stop right there for just a second. I promise you there's plenty for us to talk about for the next half hour in in this uh, little half of of a verse, really half of a sentence. But remember what is happening after the fall. God speaks to Eve. You can read what he says to Eve in verse 16. Then he speaks to Adam. You can read what he says to Adam in verses 17, 18, and 19. But in this text, God is speaking to who? He's speaking to Satan, who is disguised as a snake. And God promises, God curses, we could even call it, is, is, is God tells us that there's going to be enmity between Satan and the woman Eve. Now, what does God mean when he says this? Well, that word that God uses in the Hebrew is, a, is the word for enmity, but it's translated a couple different ways in the Old Testament depending on the context. Sometimes it's translated enmity and sometimes it's translated hatred. And actually, in all the other occurrences, in every single other occurrence that the word is used in the Bible, it's not just talking about some kind of a childlike hatred like we might think of, um, you know, man, I really hate the Chicago Cubs, or I hate the Denver Broncos, or I really hate how long it takes to get through the drive through at McDonald's in the morning. That's not the type of hatred that it's talking about. Every other time it's used is a situation where the hatred is so severe and so intense that a murder is committed. Like somebody dies as a result of this. That's the kind of hatred, the kind of enmity that we're talking about, that God says is going to exist between who? Between Satan the devil and Eve the woman. Now some people, really, some people say, well look, this is why women don't like snakes. They, they say this. Maybe you've heard this before. They say, look, you know, God says that there's going to be a hatred, an enmity between Eve the woman and this snake, and that enmity has been transferred down generationally. And I don't know, you know, it seems a little bit like a, a stretch to me. I don't know if I'll, I'll go that far. Um, I do know, and many of you know, that, that my mother would see a snake. Just see a snake, and it was like, get out the defibrillator. Like, we got to shock her back to life. It was paralyzing for her. It was, it was crippling for my mother, which made it a blast for me and my friends. But what it really means, what it really means is that as the generations go on and on and on, there's going to be a hatred, there's going to be an enmity between you and Satan. And you know, I don't know what everybody's spiritual background is. You know, I don't know what you were taught when you were growing up or what you believe up until this point. I know we've got people that come from a lot of different denominations, a lot of different spiritual backgrounds here at Freshwater. But we as a church do not believe, do not believe that Satan is some type of a mythical character or some red-caped, horned villain with a pitchfork that was created just to keep the masses in check. We don't believe that at all. We believe Satan is a real person. He's a real person. He was an angel who desired to be God and desired to be worshipped. He was kicked out of heaven and now roams earth. Real person. And he has real henchmen known as demons. Not fanciful, like, fake things that only exist in our minds. We believe that's real. Like, that's legitimate. And actually, listen to all the things the Bible calls Satan. First of all, his personal name, Satan, means adversary. So the name kind of indicates his most basic function in that he opposes God, doesn't he? He opposes the plans of God. He opposes the will of God. He opposes the people of God. 
He's also called the devil in the New Testament. The, the word devil means false accuser or liar. Other titles include the tempter, the wicked one, the accuser of the brothers, the God of this age. And by the way, that's God with a little g as in a false God. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, which kind of tells us how he's able to deceive people. But the point is that his desire and his goal for us is that we would be like him, that we would be rejected by God, that you would be focused on yourself, that you would desire to be worshipped by others rather than to cast your worship toward our Creator and to ultimately follow Him rather than to follow God. And I'll add this, He does a pretty good job at enticing a lot of people to live that life. Wouldn't you agree? Now I'll just kind of give a little story to illustrate how Satan does this. And of course, there are many avenues that this happens, many avenues that this kind of plays out in the real world and ways that this rises to the surface. But there's a scam that is exceptionally prevalent in some of the bigger cities of the world. I saw it on a trip that I took to Europe, but you'll, you'll find it in some major t- tourist areas where you'll find someone that is dressed exceptionally, like, extravagantly. So, for example, they might be dressed like a superhero out of a comic book, or they might be dressed in clothes that are all spray-painted the same color, and their face is painted the exact same color, and their shoes are the exact same color. And the point is that they're there to get your attention. Like, you see them, and you immediately know, look, this is not the way that people look and people dress. And if you're a tourist, they're waiting for you because they see you with your camera. They can recognize that you're not dressed the way that everybody else is dressed in that country. You're snapping pictures. You're looking all around what other people are going on with their life. And, and if you're a tourist, of course, you see them, and they'll ask you, hey, do you want to take your picture with me? And you'll say, well, yeah, of course, because what are you looking for? You're looking for strange things, and you're a foreigner in a different country. So you say, yeah, you pose with them, your friend or relative takes the picture, and after the picture is taken, they demand payment. Like they demand it. And most people don't like conversation, don't, don't like controversial conversations. So if they do refuse to pay, the street performer might, you know, raise their voice at them. He might kind of cause a scene and make them feel out of place. They might even threaten to call the police or who knows what, at which most people finally just give in and they pay whatever exorbitant price that it takes to shut this guy up and then they just kind of count it as a learning experience in their life. And this kind of scam goes on all across the world. We might even be able to say in most major metropolitan areas. It might be packaged a little bit differently, but it's designed to give the impression of one thing and then to deliver something else. Well, the way that Satan displays his hatred for you, his tactic, we could almost say, his strategy is to deceive you. Like, that's what he wants to do. It's that simple. It's to deceive you. It is to promise one thing and to deliver something else. It is to convince you and me that the people that we, and and the people that we love, that true things aren't true and that false things aren't false. That's what he wants to do. Now, before we move on, I want to give you some some passing thoughts regarding how we can keep ourselves from being deceived and how we can keep from accepting the deception that Satan is so good at kind of ushering into our life. Here are four ways. These four ways are listed in your outline if you're doing the fill-in thing. Here's number one. Live in community. Live in community. There's a reason that Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 say the following. They say, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. 
all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul describes the responsibility of the pastor in Ephesians chapter 4 as being to teach the scriptures so that we're all not thrown here and there by every wave of doctrine and everything that kind of washes in off on the beach. His idea seems to be that we would be grounded in the word as we study the Bible together. There's so many more examples, but I'll just say that one of the greatest ways to keep you, to keep yourself from being deceived by Satan is to have people around you that can kind of keep watch. You know, that can watch your life, can watch what's going on and kind of warn you when they see you begin to drift. Number two, know the word. Know the word. It seems so basic, and it is basic, isn't it? But it's the truth. You don't have to know everything that you need to watch out for because the list of tactics that Satan could use to deceive you is really endless. What you need to know, though, is the scriptures. There's the old illustration that's been used so many times. I can confirm that it's true, though, because before my wife began staying home and taking care of our baby, she managed a bank for a living, So she told me this is exactly how it works. But when you're working the counter of a bank and you're handling money, you're constantly watching for people trying to pass counterfeits. And the way that you watch for those counterfeits is not by knowing what every counterfeit looks like. Like you don't have to know what every counterfeit paper looks like and every counterfeit ink and every counterfeit stamp or whatever like that. That's not the way that you do it all. All you really need to know is you need to know the real one really, really well. And if you know what real money looks like, and you know it really, really well, when a counterfeit comes across the table, you can spot it immediately. Well, the primary reason that we're so easily deceived by bad doctrine, or by a bad worldview, or by a bad whatever, is as simple as us not knowing what's right, because we're not in the Word. We're just simply not in the Scriptures. If you remember, what, what, how did Jesus respond when Jesus was tempted by Satan himself in Matthew chapter 4? Each of Satan's temptations was met with the same response by Christ. Jesus said, it is written. And then he quoted Scripture. One author summarized this by saying, If the Son of God uses the Word of God to effectively end the temptations, which we know works because after three failed efforts, the devil left him, how much more do we need to use it to resist our own temptations? All our efforts to resist will be weak and ineffective unless they're powered by the Holy Spirit through the constant reading, studying, and meditating on the Word. So I would beg you, be a student of the Bible. Come to your personal Bible study. Come to your life group. Come on Sunday mornings craving the Word of God, understanding that if you don't know the Word of God, if you're not in a process where you're coming to better understand the Word of God, you make yourself an easy target. Thirdly, set your mind on the things of God. Set your mind on the things of God. And actually, that's exactly what God says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. It says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's very easy for Satan to tempt us and to lead us astray and to, de- and to deceive us when our minds are set on worldly things. So be careful what you watch. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you allow to infiltrate your life. Satan may very well use that exact stuff to deceive us and to lead us astray. And number four, finally, resist the devil. Resist the devil. And actually, that's exactly what James, the brother of Jesus, says to do in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, you might say, you know, well, I don't really feel like that's worked for me. I feel like I'm struggling, and I think I'm resisting the devil, but it just seems like he's constantly like pulling me astray and constantly destroying my life and destroying the lives of other people around you. So why doesn't it work for me? Well, if you're thinking that, 
What James says right before that is really the key to understanding that passage because right before James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, James also says, submit to God. And I would say, and I would make this case from the Bible, but I'd also make it from my own life. I would say that Satan is most productive in tempting me and leading me astray in the areas of my life that I haven't fully turned over to God. So the reason you might have trouble being consistent in your giving or the reason you might be addicted to pornography or the reason you can't stand your spouse may be because there are areas of your life that you haven't turned over to Christ. Now we've got to move on, especially considering that we've only covered the half of the verse, and it's not even the good half, really. I mean, it's like the depressing half. We have to move on to the good part of the verse. So let's kind of look at the, the second tier of the, the, the promise that God has made. That first tier was that life for us is going to involve struggle. There's going to be enmity and hatred between us and Satan. And then you've got those four ways that we can keep ourselves from being deceived. Now let's move on to that second tier. God has promised that Christ is going to conquer. God has promised that Christ is going to conquer. Is there going to be a hatred that exists between Satan, the devil, and you? Yes, there is. Is life sometimes going to be difficult with things like temptation and suffering and disease and and heartache? You better believe it there is. But let me tell you, friends, Christ is going to wipe all of that away. Christ is going to conquer. He's going to win the war. He's going to win the war. Because look with me now at the second half of verse 15. What does it say? It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now remember what's happening. This is God speaking to and making a promise really to Satan the devil. The first half of the verse, there's going to be enmity or hatred between you and Satan. God speaks about Eve being the recipient, but we have to remember that Eve was called the mother of the living. And when God begins to talk about her offspring, we begin to see that this hatred, this enmity, is going to reach a breaking point. And remember, God is speaking to Satan who is disguised as a snake, and and God points us really to a future battle. Because God says he, whoever he is, we haven't talked about who he is, but whoever he is, he shall bruise your head, snake, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. The picture is... Think about a man taking his foot and stomping on the head of a snake. Picture that in your mind. That snake will strike, won't it? Sure it will. And it will strike the man's heel. But what's ultimately going to happen? That man is going to crush and he's going to smash that snake's head. Will the man be hurt? Surely yes. But is the snake going to die when he twists his ankle and crushes the head of the snake? You better believe it. So God the Father is right here promising that, yeah, you know what, Satan? You're going to be able to have your time. You're going to do some damage. There's going to be suffering in the world. You're going to be able to tear some marriages up. But guess what? Your days are numbered because soon enough, one is going to come who's going to crush you. That's the promise. Now, I hate to break it to you, or maybe I enjoy breaking it to you. I'm not really sure yet. But you are not that person. Do you realize that? You're not the snake crusher. Now, I know that you're tough, and I know that you're smart. I know that you got a lot of good things going for you. But in this story, guess what? You're not the hero. And I'm not the hero. We're the victims. We're the ones that have been attacked, right? Because Jesus Christ 
He's the one who ultimately is in the lineage of Eve. He's part of her offspring, just like God is saying. And Jesus is the one who he would maybe 3,500 years later be born in a stable. You know the story. He's adored by angels and shepherds and the wise men from afar. But when he would grow, he would be nailed to a cross. He'd die. He'd rise from the grave. Jesus was the one who would take his heel and he would bury it into the skull of that snake when he conquered death. When he rose from the grave, when he conquered sin for us, that's what Jesus was doing. He was crushing, he was utterly dismantling Satan's power over you. That's what Jesus did. And if you didn't know, this is good news. Like, this is a reason to go out into the rain on Sunday and gather with the people of God, right? This, this is why Christmas is so wonderful. This is it. Now, some of you might say, okay, if Jesus crushed Satan, if that's what happened when Jesus rose from the grave, if Jesus is the snake crusher, and if that's what happened when he conquered death, why is Satan still destroying lives? You know, why is Satan still tempting unbelievers? Why is he still, even to this day, just making havoc of marriages and our finances and the world in general? And that's a Wonderful question. Let me kind of illustrate the answer to that question like this. Let's say you become a world traveler. And in your world traveling, you decide that you want to go visit South Korea. I've heard that it's beautiful. I've heard that it's cool. I'd love to go there someday. And so you're visiting all the tourist destinations, obviously because of the way you dress and the fact that you don't know Korean. Probably most of you don't know Korean. Um, uh, People realize quickly that you're an American, so you find your way into a Korean restaurant, you sit down and you know it's got the, the menu and no pictures, just words, you don't have any idea what anything is. So finally, you know, after kind of wading through the menu and trying to decide what you're going to have, you basically just point at something for the waiter and the waiter chuckles kind of under his breath and he writes down your order and he leaves the table. And he comes back in 10 minutes with a dish known as Sanokji or However it is that you pronounce that, I'm not really sure. But Sanakji is a freshly killed octopus seasoned with sesame seeds and sesame oil. Uncooked. And when I say freshly killed, I mean that when you pick up a piece of the sliced tentacle, it will wrap itself around your chopstick and fight you for its life. And that's Sanakji. Now, no video not going to show you this this morning. No image. You can Google it whenever you get home or Google it right now for all I care. I don't know. But think about this. It's dismembered. They say that when you eat it, it will fight you, like to go down your throat. It will try to crawl out. It's just the natural reaction of the tentacle. It's so fresh. It's so just freshly sliced up that it still has in its almost muscle memory that this is what you do when you're attacked. So it's dead, it's dismembered. For all practical purposes, we could say, look, this thing, death is imminent for this piece of meat, but it's still fighting, isn't it? And with spiritual matters, in the time that we live in, there is an already but not yet aspect to Satan's demise. There's an already but not yet aspect to Satan's demise. He has been defeated That's why you as a Christ follower have been set free. He has been crushed. He has absolutely no power over you if you're a Christian. But we're kind of in that time between when someone stomps on a snake and when two minutes later they reach down, they pick up that dead snake's body and they throw it over the fence. 
There is coming a time in the future when Jesus is going to return, and when he returns, he's going to reach down, he's going to pick up Satan, and he's going to throw him into the lake of the fire where he will never bother the world again. We're in that time when we're awaiting that event. Now let's begin to wrap this up this morning. What have we seen? We've seen the two tiers of this old, old promise that God makes. I mean, we're in the third chapter of the Bible, and God's already casting us vision, promising us that Jesus is going to come, isn't he? So what's the first tier? First, God promised that life is going to involve struggle. We're in the first half of verse 15. Enmity, hatred between Satan and mankind is promised. And then that second tier of the promise, and this is the encouraging part for us, Christ is going to conquer. There is a direct promise of Jesus Christ right there. As early as the third chapter of the Bible, God is showing us as wrong as the world seems to be with everything that goes wrong and the suffering and the pain and the heartache and the mistakes and the temptations, God promised that he was going to make it right. God was going to fix it all. We see that in Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection, but we also see a picture of it in his imminent return. Now, before we close, let me share this and then will be just about done. As many of you know, we've had a group from our church in Mexico this last week um, helping. They're not hanging out on the beach or anything like that. They're helping with our church plant in south-central Mexico in the little town known as Tepeca. If you were here last week, you saw us pray for them and commission them, and we're excited about everything that God is using them to do. Well, I'm thankful for my life group because, and this is a good thing about being part of a life group, is they stepped over the plate. They provided us food every, me and my, my kids, food every single night. So I haven't had to go out to eat, haven't had to cook a whole lot or anything like that. And they just really blessed us. And um, it's been awesome to have them minister to us and kind of show us some love. But lunch, lunch was still my responsibility, which I'm a little bit upset about. Lainey, my oldest daughter, she's seven. And I had the job of, of making her lunch uh, and getting it ready so that I could send her off to school in the morning. And one day, she wanted included in her lunch mac and cheese. Now, look, y'all know mac and cheese is like one of the easiest things that you can possibly make, right? I mean, it's right there with a bowl of cereal. It's like right there with ramen noodles. So I pulled out one of these mac and cheese bowls from the, the cabinet. It's a little plastic bowl, and y'all know you pull off the lid, and then you fill it halfway up with water, and you kind of stir it a little bit, throw it in the microwave, three and a half minutes, bam, pull it out, presto, voila, mac and cheese. Uh, throw some fruit in the lunch bag, and I'm dad of the year, right? I mean, that's kind of the way that it works. It's all it takes. But as I'm looking at the instructions, I've already got the kettle on the stove warming up water for coffee. So surely I'm thinking, look, it won't hurt to kind of just pour boiling water in there and it's going to kind of quicken it up and it won't take so long to do. I won't take the three and a half minutes and, you know, I can kind of keep from using the microwave. So that's what I do. Um, So I take the kettle, I pour boiling water in the little bowl of macaroni and I'm kind of proud of myself for innovating until I look at the macaroni in the bowl three minutes later. Because rather than being alphabets or rather than being Elsa and Anna and uh, Olaf macaroni or whatever in the world it was supposed to be, I guess the water was too hot because it had basically melted the macaroni and as it had cooled, it had become one humongous macaroni ball. That's what it had done. That's the only way that I can describe it. And as I looked at it, I thought to myself for a second, I thought, well, I'm not sure that that's the way that it's supposed to look. You know, I'm not positive. I, I got to admit, I don't know that I've ever seen macaroni like in process. I generally see it at the very end when I'm about to eat it or in the cabinet when it hasn't been cooked. So I'm not sure um, what it looks like. I normally just see it at those stages. So I had my doubts, I'll admit, which led me to do what any good father would do was I took the bucket and I 
dumped the macaroni in my daughter's thermos, and I put the lid on it, and I threw it in her bag, and I sent her off to school, right? Isn't that what all of you would do? And everything was great until I picked her up, because what do you think was the first thing, the very first thing that she asked me about? She said, Dad, what in the world was that thing that you gave me for lunch? I opened up my thermos, and Dad, it looked like macaroni. Like, it had the, the orange plasticky color like macaroni. My teacher thinks that maybe it was at one point in its life uh, macaroni, but it would have taken a fork and a steak knife to eat it. So I asked her the next day if she wanted macaroni and cheese. She said, no, I'm going on macaroni and cheese strike until mommy gets back, which is tomorrow evening, by the way. Praise Jesus. Well, when we think about Christmas and we think about the celebration of God coming down and living with us, we as Christ followers can't help but seeing, see it as existing in a world and being celebrated in a world that is wrought with suffering and pain and mistakes. Right? I mean, that's kind of the way that we see the world. But at the same time, we find joy in the fact that this world that you live in, it has been offered a solution. This God-man, this baby in a manger that would die and would rise from the grave and ascend back to heaven. He is coming back. Satan has been defeated. It's as good as done. Christ has crushed his head. It's only a matter of time before Jesus will reach down. He will come down. He will pick up that dead snake. He's going to toss him over the fence. Now, my question for you is, is this what you see when you look at the nativity? Like, is this, do you see Jesus as the snake crusher? The one who would take his foot and place it on the top of the accuser, the tempter, and then he'd drive it into the ground. I hope after this morning, that's the way that you see it. I hope you see the defeating of Satan. I hope you see the freedom from sin. I hope you see the boot heel of God beginning to come down out of heaven and press just a little bit of pressure on top of Satan's skull. Uh, Most of all, I hope you see that this was always God's plan. From the third page of the Bible, this is what God had planned. God had planned to take care of you, to deliver you, never to leave you, never to forsake you, to save you from your sins. This is what God had planned all along. Now we're now going to turn to a time of Worship through giving. Your guests here at Freshwater know that this is not the time when we hit you up for money at all. As a matter of fact, we don't expect you to give at all. This is the time when the partners of Freshwater and the regular tenders of the church give their money, give their tithes and offerings toward the ministry, toward accomplishing the mission of the church here at Freshwater. There are four ways that we give here at Freshwater. The first way is through the giving baskets, which are going to come by in just a second. The second way is in the foyer at the giving kiosk where you can give by debit card. The third way is the giving box, which is also located in the foyer. And then the fourth way is, of course, online at freshwaterjc.com, the same way that many of you give. So in just a second, I'm going to pray. And when I pray, we're all going to stand and we're going to sing together. And those baskets are going to come by. And as those come by, I just that's an opportunity for you to give and uh, to worship the Lord through, um, through giving toward the ministry of the church. So I'll pray for us, and then we'll stand and sing together. Heavenly Father and Lord, we thank you, God, for your love and your grace and your mercy, and we know that, um, that we really have nothing to offer you that, that isn't already yours, Lord. You own everything. Even that which we give back to you is, is, is yours, Lord, which is humbling. 
I thank you, Lord, that we get to study your word, and during this Advent time, we get to just anticipate the day when we celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the fact that of all the things that you could have done, you chose to come down, you chose to live with us, you chose to live a perfect, sinless, holy, blameless life, and that you chose to head to the cross, take upon yourself our sin and our rebellion, and then three days later, rise from the grave, that you would place your foot on that snake's head and that you would crush him. And now we that are born again, we that are Christians, we know that Satan has absolutely no power over us. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We get to follow you. We get to worship you. We get to give to you. We get to study your word. And we get to live in freedom. So thank you, Lord, for conquering sin. Thank you, Lord, for conquering death. Jesus' name I pray. Amen.